Ladies and gentlemen and non-binary friends, welcome to another captivating episode of the Information Entropy Podcast. I'm Mitchell, your science enthusiast and host. I'm thrilled to have my partner in comedic crime, the witty and scientifically curious Tom. Hello. Would you say you're psycurious, Tom? Oh, 100%. <laughs> Uh, today, <laughs> oh dear. Uh, today we're embarking on an exciting exploration into the mesmerizing world of parasites again. So good, we're doing it twice. Uh, if you scroll back to earlier this year, last year, late last year, uh, we, February, we, February, yeah, we did an episode on parasites, but we got talking about them last night, and we're gonna do what another episode because they're just, just it's such a large, large field to go into. Um, so get ready to dive deep into the hidden secrets of the cunning organisms as we uncover their survival strategies, expose their bizarre adaptations, and navigate the intricate relationships they form with their unsuspecting hosts. So sit back, relax, and prepare to be entertained and educated in equal measure as we unleash the tantalizing truth about parasites. Let's dive in, Tom. Let's go. Energy. High energy. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So I had a a coffee this morning. I went to Costa to get a coffee. Um, Yeah. Normally, I just have like the instant slash French press kind. Yeah. Um, I have been off my tits <laughs> on just like a caffeine rush for a long time. <laughs> I'm still vibrating. Um, oh, see, I wish I, I'm I here with the energy. Okay. I haven't had mine yet, my second one of the day. So well, this is a facade of energy. Right. <laughs> uh, if you can follow us, Twitter at Information Entry Pod, Instagram, Information Entry Pod, Spotify, iTunes, wherever you'd like, but you can. Find us, get us in your RSS feed. We appreciate any sort of ratings, followings, all that good stuff. Leave us on to your dog or when you're about to go to sleep. That was some feedback that we got. I'm not sure if you, you, yeah. <laughs> you heard that all. Yeah. Um, I do that with other people's things. Uh, okay. Yeah. See, I don't... With other podcasts. Not not with my own. That would be a bit okay. weird. No, I but, just... uh, yeah. I don't, I don't get the whole like, falling asleep with something on. Never, never... Never done it. I can't fall asleep asleep with with something not on these days. I've conditioned myself. Like Netflix sends me to sleep or a podcast or just some chill music. Nah. Gotta be teetotal on the the, no sound, no audio, no nothing. Uh, It distracts my brain just enough to let me fall asleep. To trick you into sleep. Is that how you you, you do it? Yeah, I'd say so. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Fun times. Fun cool. times. Yeah. So news. News. I got some news. I'm on the news. Got some news. Bit of a big one. Um, and a bit of a heavy one, to be honest. So I try and continue the same energy into the news, but keep it appropriate and on the level. Okay. Um, and it's the first article in a very long time that I read and was like, okay, I'm gonna have to get to the bottom of this. And it's not just like a like a news piece it was a full written um what do you call it you're in the science field and they do investigation into things like a, like a paper yeah like a small paper really there was graphs and everything really wow interesting. yeah that sounds like a paper <laughs> yeah but it was it's in a, on an article on a news site so um and it's all to do with uh boys experience depression differently than girls and why it oh. matters so much okay um and it stems from the the latest i think Round of data collection, which happened uh, in 2021, in the fall of 2021, um, of over 17,000 students in 31 states in America um, who responded to roughly about around 100 questions related to mental health and suicide thoughts and behaviours. 
sexual behavior, substance and experiences of violence um, showed that there was like a, a massive increase in everything. Um, so they, they termed it that teenagers in the United States are in crisis. Okay. Due to this. Um, and this is compared to earlier data yes, gathered. Earlier okay. data. Earlier data gathered. Um, uh, so there, I think the comparison was like 2011. Right. Was what happened. Um, there was one chart that got uh, considerable media attention from this. It was the persistent sadness or hopelessness in boys went up 8% from 21 to 29%. And in girls, it raised a whopping 21%. From thirty-six to fifty-seven percent, which which is a lot. Yeah, it's a it's a massive That's amount. Huge. Um, but there is coming to question in the way that the data was gathered, not in the scientific integrity, but the the questionnaires themselves were skewed to. Uh, not they were gendered, but is. With the the mindset that the both um, girls and boys suffer or what they call the the, the symptomatic uh, so it, areas it, yeah. are so different, the, the, so therefore having one questionnaire for both is a difficult situation because you're not able to capture. There's like a whole section of boys who are answering the question truthfully, but because they're answering it because depression is displayed differently in boys, it just doesn't hit home. Correct. So essentially, they aren't being asked the right questions to express yes. how that they they actually it's, experience it, it, uh, the world. Yeah, right? okay. it's both. They're not being answered asked the right questions, but that questions come from those questions are derived from scientific research. But um, this new <laughs> uh, investigation has been done to say that there's um, there's like unique stresses for boys compared to boys and girls. Um, the girls seem to be more prone to experiencing mental distress from like social media use um, and sexual violence dealing with political climate is, is, is often hostile to women's rights but the gap between boys and girls might not be as wide as numbers indicate depression manifests differently in boys and men than girls and women mounting evidence now suggests girls are more likely to internalize feelings while boys are more likely to externalize them rather than crying when they're feeling down for instance boys may act irrational or lash out or they may engage in risky, impulsive, or even violent acts. Inward directed terms like sadness and hopelessness miss those more typically male tendencies. Masculine norms that equate to sadness with weakness may make males who are experiencing those emotions less willing to admit it, even on an anonymous survey. Right. So, subsequently, screening tools such as the one that's the CDC uh, survey may actually miss one in ten males when they're doing the screening. Um, with ten percent, there's quite a big, it's uh, quite a big gap in your data. That is a huge gap in your data. Um, this 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 idea that overlooked depression in men is, isn't new. Um, there was a Swedish island of Gotland that in 1960s and 70s suicide rates were so high. Um, so in 1983, health officials launched an education program for Gotland's doctors on depression treatments and suicide prevention. Um, the suicide rate was 20 out of every 100,000. Damn. Which, for a, even a small place such as that, was just absolutely ridiculous. But they reduced it to 7 out of 100 people by 1985. 
Um, but in subsequent deeper analysis shows that isn't the that time more? Was, uh, no seven instead of twenty. Oh, because you said uh, so. Sorry, you said twenty-two out of hundred thousand, then seven out of a hundred. Sorry, it went hundred thousand. <laughs> <laughs> I see. I see. Sorry, that's yes. Yeah. Um, you know, but a subsequent deeper analysis showed that the decline was almost entirely among women. In the two and a half years before and after the program, the number of women dying by the suicide decreased by 11 to 2, while the number of men dying by suicide mostly stayed the same, seeing a marginal decline from 16 to 15. Right. So that's where, like, you know, the gains were made, but not not for the guys. Um, yeah, and it kind of makes sense. I feel like... Um... In my experience, and I've had this conversation with maybe how uh, different genders may experience it, uh, depression and anxiety and other related things differently, is I, I feel like women, not all the time, but tend to have more of a network and are often brought up mm. speaking about these things as well, right? So you mean, yeah. Um, I feel like men generally it's, at least in the western mm, world feel yeah. a bit more isolated and it's you, you're not grow you're not brought up speaking about these things uh, of course it's, it's different in different places and other people may completely disagree but that's what i seem to have um elucidated from well my personal experiences and, and also from speaking to people about it as well um yeah it's the given the tools to work through the situation. Right. And I, there have been like, points in my life where I've been awful at working through it, right? I, I would still mm. wouldn't say I'm great at it, but I've definitely improved at working through things. Um, But yeah, and then on top of that, as you're saying, right, the, the difference in experience, right, not only the difference in coping, uh, also it, it must be a big factor. So, yeah. yeah, crazy. Yeah, it's it's, it's uh, just an awful thing, and I th it's strange to think about the whole like because it then goes on to link, you know, goes further into the depression, the suicide link, and um, statistics about successful suicides being higher in men. So it's quite a dark um, article. Um, yeah, but like even thinking about personal lived experiences as you said coming from a place that there were well we we spoke about it before a whole i think it was like five six years ago in the space of i think it was two three months um for men say men <laughs> the teen old teen young men 20 year olds um commit suicide um so there was a massive push for it but you don't see i'm not sure if it's not it's not in the news, but like the same doesn't for women. Yeah, like those numbers don't match up. But that's again, that's personal experience, and so the, the numbers we completely, yeah, yeah. I, I think that's right, and also I think in um, the Western world and the, the news that we're exposed to, right, is probably biased towards uh men having a higher suicide rate and maybe there are other places in the world where women have a higher a higher rate that i'm just ignorant to um actually i'm, I'm looking at the, the, the article now there's actually a graph 
of deaths per 100,000 specified in um, age groups, men and women. Uh, right. 15 to 24 is about 9 for females. And for males, you're looking at about 28. And by yeah. 25... It's, it's, it's strange statistics. So what, if you what... look at it, it the, the female one kind of like goes up to about 8, 9 and then plateaus and it stays like yeah. that. And after 45, it then decreases to 75. But for men, it peaks and spikes between the ages of 20, 15 and 34 and then stays at that incredibly high level to like 65 and then increases to 45 over the age of 65. Bloody hell. So yeah, I, I guess to to pull this into perspective, what you originally said, just to so I I know I'm on track. The original findings that you presented showed that females were struggling more with depression, right? But when you actually look at figures to yes. do with self harm and and suicide rates, it appears that men are struggling a lot more yes. than the original data so, shows. So that, and that could possibly be coming from biases introduced in the way that we ask questions. Yeah. Right. Okay. Which is which is interesting when it's like, because we, we also discussed, maybe next week we'll do science of integrity. And I think that comes, this comes into it and it's not malicious integrity that's being underwritten, like underpinned no. by the, these questions and the surveys that are done because, you know, they believe that, um, there's another article which I was actually going to talk about that was to do with um, a feminist's approach to um, animal behavior psycho- psychology. Right. And it's this new wave of like they're going through and trying to look at the hetero and homophobic normatives. No, <laughs> I don't know what the other word is. The, the opposite of heteronormative way of looking at behaviors because all the analysis that's been done till now have been heteronormative. Uh, can you so, explain heteronormative? Um, that you're coming at like, well, heteronormative just means that in like, um, if you take examples like sitcoms and things, they're normally man, woman, two kids, cis, straight, that kind of jazz. Oh, I see. Okay. So there's like a, the, like, it's that's heteronormative. Oh, so we're viewing think, the animal kingdom that, like, in a heteronormative like, um, like paradigm, and it may not be the case. Yeah, and the people doing okay. the research have come at it from that perspective in mind, and not been fully open in their perspective about behaviours as such. I see. Yeah. Completely. Yeah, that's yeah. Um, what, same, what, one of my PhD like chapters is, is on bias in animal behaviour research. Um, mm. So I'd, I'd be happy to to dive into this. Uh, next week or whenever we decide to do it. I think it's super fascinating. And that's yeah. something that I wonder, how can we we break away from that? Um, and when we do speak about this, I'll, I'll speak about mechanisms that are employed to conserve against uh, other types of bias. But this, this seems like a difficult one. Mm, very much so. But also maybe yeah, not. The depression thing. I, I think it, it would depend. Like If it was, if the uh, species you're studying are very sexually dimorphic, so... Uh, where the males and females are obviously different, let's say sea lions, right? Often the, the the males are huge compared to the females and have massive crests. But if you're looking at species where it's very difficult to tell the sex, um, let's say bees, right? If you're not including the, the queen, um, at least for me, a naive observer, maybe I wouldn't be able to ascribe uh, 
my own bias of what they should be doing because I know their sex, right? Hmm. Um, but yeah, very interesting. That could this could be a, a whole episode or two on it by itself. <laughs> um, so I'll yes. stop there before I go down uh, down the rabbit hole. Okay. Well, the on the, at the end of the, the article, they describe the, the shifting views on depression. Um, obviously, the CDC have come back and fired back because they think whatever they do is perfect. Which you know, of course, <clears throat> of course they would. Um, but there is other things that they're trying to these groups that are now saying there's a difference between like these questionnaires not being right. It's also demographic factors because the CDC has created this that goes across all states, all manner, all level of society when that may not work the same for all people of all demographics. Um, oh, 100%. It just becomes then so hard to create a questionnaire list that targets a specific demographic because I think there are so many ethical, <laughs> possibly... Uh, just debates that would arise from that. Why are you asking this group of people this question and not this group of people? Mm. And as a government agency and as a scientific body, um, I just don't think they can cross that that line and expect any reasonable work to come from it. Yeah. Very interesting, but that's very, very, very hard and very difficult to read about as well. So yeah, but important. This first movement... Right? Um, they, the the CDC, if they are going to change it, and they're looking at it because they, um, making these changes takes time. It's called the the Youth Risk Behavior Survey. If you didn't know, it's the official name for it. Um, but if enough experts express concern related to it, the earliest the CDC could amend it is by twenty twenty five. Okay, so it's not going to be a, a quick change. It'll be a two year job, but you know, hopefully they change it if it's right. Yeah, it makes sense Like to do it right. Yeah. Uh, make changes, but make the changes right. And I guess in the meantime, still gather data. Because mm -hmm. um, better to gather some data than none at all. Yeah. Well, I also saw actually, that's very bad. But Another you know. <laughs> very interesting article about the, uh, the care for people that are depressed. Or oh, people, people that go through depression um, is the same no matter if they're uh, male or female which is not the approach yeah right because if you treat say like you've got a guy um to the the, the like the the hugging and making feel better and to be there may not be the solution it may be like that person needs to um feel like they're accomplishing things so like you go for that but there's like this massive uh wide support system that essentially just says like you need to do x where x isn't the right way to go yeah for depending on what uh sex you are it needs to be a much more tailored system right and yeah yeah it makes sense for sure and it feels like the scientific community is catching up which is awful to say but it like no uh, it's true things move very slowly in science and i'm sure you know these studies are looking at you know solely people who identify as male and female, right? But I'm sure there are people who don't feel like they fit into those categories that may even experience it differently. Yes, Especially they, people who are under uh, hormonal therapy, for example, right? Yeah, they, they, I think that they use male and female, but they also use, I think, when they drill down into the actual survey itself, it's masculine and feminine. So they're like masculine traits 
all the way way of like masculine feeling which i know okay. is even more of a, a gray matter but it's a better way of describing certain things than like male female or boy yeah. girl for sure then again that has its own lexicon issues because like you know, feeling like you want to break something or take drugs is that masculine no it's just an action that we've made seem masculine because yeah we just think men do it um but yes parasites we're getting way too far down into that lane that's a whole nother lane that we can go down i mean we probably will at a later date but yeah. today we're talking about parasites so babies <laughs> I specifically told myself not to look at babies because we did that last time. We did do that. I haven't looked at babies this time. But, if you um, if you want to hear that debate, head on yeah, back to the parasite episode fa- uh, where we ask the question: Are human babies parasites to humans? Yes. Uh, my argument was no. Mitch's was yes. I believe. Yes. Uh, I. Um, um, so yeah. Go, go listen to that. It's, it's yeah. an interesting listen, for sure. <laughs> it's a very, very interesting one. I do have some facts. I've got some more facts. Yeah, okay. About go parasites. Um, let me pull these up one second. I'll put them in like a little... I've space. got, um, instead of facts, I found an article that said five reasons why you want to be infected by a parasite, which I thought was so mind-boggling. I'm going to bring it to you guys instead of my facts. Oh, okay, that's cool. Are we, do we all have parasites in them? Is it in us? Isn't that... Is that a thing, um, protozoa in our body? We've got like so many. Maybe, perhaps. In our guts, like hundreds you know. of thousands, I think, I'm pretty sure. Okay, so my facts. Uh, ticks, who are parasites, are also arachnids, which meaning uh, means they're oh, members they? of the, the spiders. Because yeah, they feed off hosts. They, they attach and they live off the blood. Yeah, fair play. Yeah, so you got you got spider par- parasites. They aren't nasty little things. Having grown up in Devon, you're like, oof, you get men. Yeah. You go for a walk and you'll find some. Takes for days. Yeah. I thought they'd like, they couldn't survive that well out in the wilderness, but they can survive out through the water for 20 days. They can oh, just yeah. sit on that leaf waiting for you for 20 That's all they days. Need to do. It's yeah. kind of crazy, really. Yeah. Um, but it makes sense, right? It wouldn't be a very good strategy, I don't think. Um, <laughs> no. They couldn't survive off no, of you, yes. right? For you're that correct. long. Yeah. Uh, second, second fun fact: the parasites are the most common form of life on Earth. Parasites, uh, scientists, parasites believe no. Scientists yeah, believe that would. over eighty percent of all living things are parasites, especially humans. Sucking it off makes this sense. Called Earth. I mean, it, it's why <laughs> develop a whole new like mechanism when you can just profit off someone else's, right? Right. Parasites are capitalists. Right. I was going to say, parasites, Tom the capitalist parasite now. <laughs> From an evolutionarily, uh, evolutionary perspective, um, not a market one. No. Okay. Uh, and the top three parasitic infections in the US are trichomonoiasis, which is a sexually transmitted disease caused by the protozoan trich. Cabmonosis vaginalis. Uh, right, which about vaginalis. Point, yeah, vaginalis is about 7.4 cases annually. Um, Giardia, a protozoa that causes intestinal problems, which uh, about, uh, infect about 2 million people annually. And Cryptosporidium, a protozoa infection that affects about 300,000 300, people each year. That's wild. Yeah, people, people, people be infected all the time. And people be infected. I, I think it's all something about the tapeworm. 
Um, the apparent. Yeah. Okay. It's estimated that five percent of Americans have tapeworms at any That's given moment, uh, but most aren't even aware of it. Yeah. People see. People use them to. I, I, I read this as a as a as a, as a fact. <laughs> it was people using them as like dietary things. The tapeworms yeah. don't actually eat enough to help you with a diet. The things that they no. eat are the wrong things to go on a diet for. Like the fat stuff, I still believe goes through, but they eat all the good stuff, so it won't help yeah. you. Not a good time. Yeah. Um, I'll quickly go through this list of five reasons why you might want to be infected by a parasite, um, which is just wild to me. But um, the, the reasons they're giving are a fertility boost. Turns out roundworms might make women more fertile. Um, there was a study published in journal, uh, in Science, sorry, the journal Science in 2015. Um, allergy relief. This one's for you, mate. Uh, one theory about a hyperclean modern society is that it has greatly reduced the human exposure to parasites, and thus the immune system doesn't have much to do except pick fights with proteins, peanuts, and pollen. Um, irritable bowel syndrome. It's been Potentially reported, again in science, in 2016 that parasitic worms reduce symptoms of irritable bowel diseases in mice. Mm -hmm. And these last two are really kind of wild. So one of them suggests getting infected with a liver fluke, and it produces a certain protein called granulin, which basically allows for the unchecked proliferation of cells that mark cancer, essentially making you much more likely to develop cancer but the benefit might be that if you get a, a wound, the wound will close quicker. Yeah. I, I, don't, I don't see that being a, a big enough benefit, really. Um, and the last one, there's been a long-term study since 2011, and uh, they just recently published the article, actually, a couple of years ago, 2021. They found that... In Argentina, people with multiple sclerosis, or MS, who are naturally infected with gut parasites experienced much milder symptoms of the disease. So they got 72 patients who have suffered from MS, um, intentionally infected them with these parasites, and they did find that actually these parasites alleviated symptoms of MS. So weird. Uh, they still don't really know the mechanism, but it happens. So hmm. pretty wild pretty wild cool right halfway into the show i think we can do a little definition <laughs> parasites. parasites what are those yeah. what are those a par parasite is any organism that lives on or in a host organism and gets its food from or at the expense of its hosts there are three main classes of parasites that can cause disease in humans so it's protozoa Eminent and ectoparasites. It also what? has to be a different species to the host. That was that was that was the like the argument that we were having over the baby. Yeah, I want to see, <laughs> I want to see the baby. <laughs> I want to see the baby. Um, I have a, one of my favorite definitions comes from uh, E. O. Wilson, who's quite a famous entomologist in biology, so the study of insects, and he describes parasites as predators that eat prey in units of less than one so they just take yeah. from the host but they don't kill a host well they can kill but they're not eating the entire host slash yeah. prey 
it's um, not in their their favor to kill the host. No, exactly. They lose their they, they lose rely their on they rely on it for the entirety or part of uh, their life cycle. Um, yeah, and it, what I find so interesting about parasitism is it's not like secluded to one region or realm of life, right? So only in animals do you get predation, right? For the most part. Mm-hmm. We'll leave slime mold and other fungi and things. There are exceptions, okay? It's biology. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but parasitism covers everything. So you've got your single-celled, like, protozoans, your animals, like your hookworms, your lice, your mosquitoes, your fungi, which is your, your, your honey fungus, um, which causes ringworm, um, and even plants, such as mistletoe. Yeah, deadly. So... Yeah, really, really super interesting. And I, the ones that I find most interesting are ones that are like cross-realm animals or cross-realm parasitism. So like we spoke about last time, your fungi are not parasitizing other fungi. They're parasitizing ants, like animals. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's just really, really impressive, evolutionarily speaking. So, yeah. Um how would you like to kick off the show then? Well, what have you What have you got for us? What have I got for us? Well, I say kick off the show. Are, Pretty much exactly well halfway kicking off the show. Yeah, kick off the, uh, uh, the parasitism talk. So I've got the Chordides formonius anus. All right, which is also known as the hair worm or the Gordian worm. Okay. So in the realm of parasites, there are extraordinarily extraordinary <laughs> creatures that exhibit mind-boggling adaptations and survival strategies. One such marvel is the... I can't do it. I'm going to call it the hairworm from now on. Probably yeah, known as fine. the hairworm. This <laughs> parasite belongs to the phylum, which is the root phylum. genus. Phylum. Is that right? Yeah. I said the words yep. right? The biology yep. words right? Thanks, Tom. That's uh, okay. Phylum. <laughs> Nematomophora, <laughs> and as a as fascinated scientist and nature enthusiast alike, um, it's essentially we talked about this last night. And if you've been on TikTok or on the internet for long enough, I and mean, you've seen this absolutely horrific parasite, it's the the praying mantis invader. Oh yeah, <laughs> and it, the video that people may have seen is praying mantis being dunked in water or the back the oh, i even got the word right yesterday it wasn't the mandibles it was the back the carapace yeah nailed it the carapace of if even even if they have carapaces i'm not even sure if that's just um arachnids uh but it gets dunked in water and this like black tendrily thing comes forming out and you're like that is horrible. This is the thing from The Last of Us, and it keeps coming and coming. It's huge. This thing unravels itself to be absolutely massive, and then it, you know, fully uh, exhumes itself from the body of the. Uh, uh, just my brain. What are they called? Prey mantis, grass. Prey manti. Prey mantodes. Mantises. Mantipodes, mantipodes, and then the paramantis. It looks like it 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 kills over and dies, but it's been dead long before. uh, Yeah, this which was one of the absolutely 
crazy things about it. So a bit about the life cycle. Um, the life cycle isn't is quite you know extraordinary. It begins when the adult uh, hairworm lays an egg in freshwater environments such as ponds or stream. The egg then hatches into larvae, normal, which is so tiny that it can only be seen under a microscope, normal stuff, for a parasite. Um, these larvae are then ingested by various insect hosts, including grasshoppers, crickets and beetles, and praying mantis. Um, I've seen the grasshopper one as well as the praying mantis video on this. Yeah. So once inside the insect host, the, the larvae start their parasitic journey. They penetrate the gut wall and migrate to various parts of the host's body where they continue to develop and grow. Remarkably, the, larv the larvae do not harm the host during this stage. However, as they reach maturity, the parasitic influence becomes apparent. The most astonishing aspect of the life cycle is its ability to manipulate the behavior of its insect host. So as the hairworm approaches maturity, it exerts control over the host's central nervous system. This manipulation leads to a series of remarkable behavior changes in the host, ultimately driving it to seek water. The infected host, under the influence of the hairworm, displays abnormal behavior such as increased walking seating abilities and activities and a, tendency, and a tendency to jump into water bodies. This behavior is crucial for the, the reproductive success as that's how it then rinses and repeats. Once the infected host finds itself submerged in water, the fully developed adult hairworm emerges from its host, completing its life cycle and letting the host die. Well its body it releases the body of the host um, yeah which normally can't swim right <laughs> yes so that's mm -hmm. that's where it dies um yeah so i just watched a video of three coming out of a single praying mantis yeah and they're not tiny no they're not like they are this thick. is the thing they like, are large yeah and there's a lot in there are they just curled up inside the carapace do they go up to anywhere else how do they control the central nervous system and then just let go is it all hormonal are they like avataring you know i, I think it, i think it's i think it's avataring mate. like are they just wrapping some stuff around the central nervous system and then controlling it that like wild it's absolutely crazy it's kind of disgusting it's impressive but it is disgusting oh it's 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 one of those uh like damn nature you scary aspects yeah um it's it's the, do you know it's one of those things there's, there's a hypothesis um that it releases specific molecules that influence the host neurotransmitters or hormonal pathways uh and those molecules may mimic or interfere with the host natural signal molecules so that's how they alter the behavior and physiological responses it makes sense, but like, imagine being in a completely different phylum to your host and producing. Well, I guess neurochemicals, neurotransmitters are highly conserved, right? Yeah. So maybe, maybe it's not that impressive. I mean, yeah. it is impressive, but yeah, no, so, it is crazy. Yeah. There are other behaviors as well. It's not just water searching. It can increase increased aggression. Decreased responsiveness to threats, altered mating behaviors, like all the things you see from zombies, <laughs> from zombie movies, um, uh, and it's thought that these part of the is part of the hairworm strategy to ensure its survival and increase its chances of encountering encountering suitable mates to survive. Yeah, wild. It's crazy. 
complex chemical signaling and manipulation of a host nervous system. It's like gaslighting to the extreme. (laughs) Yes, gaslit by your own body. Yeah, (laughs) because they have to go in and then know and be like, I'm in a cricket. It needs X. Oh, I'm in a... Well, well, I um, guess romance needs why because they're not. It's not going to be the same, surely. It can't be the same. No, what I reckon is there's just a lot. Sorry, there's just a lot going on there. It's like um, when you think about like eggs being released by fish and then they make their way back to a reef. It's they they don't. It's just there are so many eggs that a lot of them happen <laughs> to end up at a reef. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, and the it, rest it makes die, them seem like they've the- got a lot more autonomy than they actually do. <laughs> So what I reckon mm. is there's just so many larvae that maybe a single grasshopper mm. or praying mantis ends up with lots of different ones and then only mm. the one that it works for probably thrives in that environment, right? Um, would be how I would imagine it works rather than each hairworm being able to recognize what species it's in and then manipulating it accordingly. Because um, I, I would imagine that involves quite a high level of recognition and learning and they're not learning from anything because it's all done innately right they're not it's not like they there's a brood of them to figure it out together they're just inside one yeah and that's their that's their life so my theory is that they it may be like a brute force kind of like okay they release all if that makes sense because surely if you had like if you could control three if you released all three chemicals that you did and they were all different for all those three creatures i don't know that they would be because neurotransmitters are highly conserved across animals so mm. we use the same neurotransmitters that grasshoppers use i'm pretty sure um, are you trying to say that this thing could control me tom do all animals use the same neurotransmitters <laughs> let's Yes, animals use the same chemicals. Uh, okay, we use them in different amounts, and maybe they control different things slightly, so I don't think it could control us. Um, but, like, it may have an effect, but also how it introduces it into the central nervous system of a praying mantis is wildly different to how we need it introduced into our central nervous system, which probably means they wouldn't be able to infect us as well. You've got to imagine that the neuroanatomy of a praying mantis is slightly simpler than that of a human. Mm. Um, and the brain, the amount of neurotransmitter needed to control behavior would be a lot less just because the brain is a lot smaller. Would be my thought. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Could be wrong, though, but that would be my, 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 my. And you know more than me. My instinct. So. Yeah. Very interesting though. Very cool Very indeed. Creepy. Scary. Oh, what yeah. have you got? You got some plants. Um, yeah. Some so I, I, I was looking at some parasitic plants because I think whenever we, we do parasites, uh, we speak about them. We we do fungi because of the whole cordyceps zombie thing. Uh, we do animals because that's something we can, you know, we're used to seeing them. But something we rarely think about is, is plants. Um and it, it sent me down a bit of a wormhole, so I'll try and encapsulate it in a, a fairly concise manner. But it does require us to go back to some GCSE biology, maybe even prior, just to understand uh, the parts of a plant or tree that uh, are parasitized uh, mainly. 
So, House of the Cell, Tom. I know it. Yeah, I mean, uh, this is going to apologise to all botanists here for listening. <laughs> I'm about to completely oversimplify this, um, but it's just so we're all on the same page. So, plants and trees are organised longitudinally in the sense that they have tube-like structures connecting the roots all the way up to the, the leaves uh, and branches. But these tubes, these like sections, I guess, are stratified horizontally. So starting at the center of the tree trunk and moving toward the bark, there are seven-ish layers depending on the, the species. And each of these layers of tissues have different roles. But what's important in terms of parasitism is just the transport tissues, which are the xylem and the phloem. So the xylem is basically just there to transport water from the roots um, to the stems and to the leaves, and also any nutrients that happen to be dissolved in the water. And it basically works through capillary action. Uh, Basically, because of how water molecules are arranged, go check that out in a couple of episodes ago, um, they will just water just pulls itself up tubes over time very slowly but if the tube is small enough uh, water will just pull itself up against gravity kind of wild um but it's just another thing that makes water weird and xylem covers if you imagine layer one is the center of the tree trunk and layer seven is the the bark xylem covers layers two to three ish um and then you've got the phloem which is like the actual living tissue of vascular plants and this transports soluble organic organic compounds that are made during photosynthesis um, particularly sugar sucrose and it just transports it around the plant and this is the innermost layer of the bark um, and indeed actually phloem is ancient greek for bark so that's how trees work kind of simply <laughs> um, so yeah parasitic plants are plants that derive some or all of its nutrient requirements from another living plant and sometimes animals but it was quite hard to find uh, consistent examples of that they make about one percent of angiosperms which are flowering plants and they're found in pretty much every single biome we know angiosperms to exist they develop a specialized organ called the hostorium haustorium which essentially just penetrates through the host plant and connects them to the xylem or phloem structure, or both of them. Um, you have plants like the striger and renanthus, which connect only to the xylem, um, and the cascuta, uh, which connects both to the phloem and the phloem and the xylem. Sorry. Now, they're classified in three main ways. They can be obligate parasites, which means they cannot survive without parasitism. They can be facultative which means only part of the life cycle is dependent on the host, whether they attack the stem or the root, and whether they are hemiparasitic, which means um, they still have the ability to photosynthesize, but still take some nutrients from the host, or whether they're holoparasitic, which means uh, they derive all of the carbon that they need from the host plant. And I didn't realize before this, but mistletoe mm. is a parasitic plant. Um, it is indeed. I had no idea. Yeah. So Mm. mistletoe is an obligate stem hemiparasite. So from that, we can take the fact that it cannot complete any part of its life cycle without a host. So it's obligate. Um, It's stem. So it attacks the stem of the host tree, uh, Mm -hmm. not the roots. 
and it's a hemiparasite. So while that it, it takes um, a lot of nutrients from the host tree, it still has some ability to photosynthesize. And that's why it's still green. Hollow parasitic plants are often not green in color because the, they, they kind of just lost the ability to, para, uh, to photosynthesize. They, they don't need that anymore. Mm. Um, but yeah, I think it's kind of funny, especially in like the, the Western world. Mistletoe is this really Christmassy romantic thing. Um, and it's just a parasite. Just a parasite. Just yeah. a parasite. Represents um, friendship and love and is considered... Well, it's considered it is a parasite. Yeah. Funny. Um, native to the British Isles and Europe. And I think it mainly uh, attaches to oak trees. But that may be changing, of course, as we've probably accidentally introduced it to many other places around the world as well. So, who knows? Who knows? Yeah. But, uh, yeah. Very cool. I think it's just something like plant parasites that you don't really think about. Um, But, like, if you took the life cycle of a tree and sped it up, like, one year per second, you may actually have quite an interesting, like, battle going on there. A very, like, chemical battle. Um, And I know they do this with corals. You know, they, they're animals, but they work on a time scale that's so much slower than us that you have to take really long videos or, uh, like, photos and then just stitch them all together over a long time frame. And then you can start to see actually what's happening um, over a longer time frame. But, yeah. Mm, interesting. I was just, because like, I, was, I was interested in this. I was like, oh, <laughs> are all weeds... As in the garden, because we talk like bottle stuff, uh, yeah, as parasites, and they're not, but there are some. No. There are there two classification of weeds parasitic weeds and non parasitic weeds. Oh, really? Um, yeah, so there's weeds that attach themselves, as we said, to the host, extract water and nutrients and carbohydrates from them. Examples of parasitic weeds include doda, which is or the witch weed. Um, Classic. that is a bitch, yeah, which, um, what is the proper term? I had it in my. It came up in my because I was like, haha, which weed? It's a great name for it. I believe it is called the Strig. Strigo? Strigo. It's yeah, like it's, a witch thing, right? Yeah, no, it's only known as witch weed. It's a parasitical plant that infects the roots of various crops, including uh, maize and rice. It belongs to the family Orobankaceae. Uh, it attaches to the roots uh, using special, specialized structures called historia. Which penetrate the host tissues to extract water and nutrients. There are also non-parasitic weeds um, that are just, you know, annoying. <laughs> yeah. um, I guess what the definition of a weed, right, is just something that's undesirable in that location. Yes, right. or invasive. Like, there's the two. Oh, okay. Because things like Japanese knotweed, bum dum dum, shock and horror. Oh, but that is oh, okay. But that is like specifically a weed. Not a weed as in the sense of like, oh, I don't want this in my garden. That is like a weed plant. It's both. It's both. Yeah. Because it, it's named weed, but it's also a weed. Not weed. Yeah. I, um, I get it. I get it. But it's not a parasite, but it is invasive. Yeah. Um, really invasive, actually. Like Really, really bad. I've seen, um, I think we did an experiment with this actually in at uni for some reason. Um, you just take like one or two pieces of knotweed and put it in a tank and just see how quickly it covers it up. 
Yeah, isn't it like oh, it's how much? It's really it's, quick. It grows so quickly. It's like three mil. Is all it needs to propagate. Um, Japanese. Let's see how quickly does Japanese. It grows ten centimeters a day. Yeah. Um. But yeah, I think there are lots of people who kind of like, oh, this Japanese not weed. We're just, we're just giving up on this place now. Like it's it's done. <laughs> yes. Like you just uh, can't get rid of it. Which, like, if you're buying a house, you ha you need to be like, it's one of the things you need to look around is to see if there's Japanese not weed because to get rid of it, you are like you have to bury it. I think under like cement or some something ridiculous. Yeah, and it's like, just everywhere. Yeah. Now, like it can devalue your property for up to twenty three thousand. Um, not surprised. Cost yeah. you that much just to get rid of it. There's <laughs> different categories. Yeah, that is true. That is true. Like how to get rid of it? You need professionals to come in. They take it, but like you can't cut it because, as we said, it propagates from literally nothing. Yeah. So you just have to like burn it <laughs> and then bury it. There have been many cases where people have like tried to get rid of it and then just made it so much worse. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yep. Yeah. Wiki how? Not that I particularly trust it in this matter. Is saying you cut it at the canes, then you spray weed killer on it, then you wait, then you have to mow the plants down and break them down, and then you have to reapply this weed killer. Yeah. Many, many times over a, a long period. And then the last step is, oh, well, if that doesn't work, just contact a professional. Yeah, that is, <laughs> is uh, spray it, bury it, burn it. Is, is the... Yeah, and then you've actually got quite specific regulations on how to dispose of Japanese knotweed because of yeah. how invasive it is. So it's just simpler to ask someone else to do it. Yeah. 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 Just contact the environment agency because you have to tell them. That's the thing. If if you come into contact with it or you know about it, you have to tell them. Be like, it's, there's some here. Oh, okay, well, it makes sense. Yeah, they're really trying to, to clamp, to clamp down on it. They need to know. Um, I can you can you eat it? I reckon you could probably make a tea from it. Let's see, Japanese not. Yeah, because I thought it had uses. Um, yeah, there's be... not weed tea. Grilled, uh, sautéed, pickled, be can be used in pies, soups, sauces, jams, chutneys. It makes sense. Is it related to the bamboo? I think so. It looks kind of like segmented like that. Yeah. Um, and oh, it since it grows works. so quickly, right? But going like picking it up, I wouldn't. Um, you can make a simple syrup as well. Oh. Uh, yeah. There's, there's like horror stories of people like camping and in being in on like a really quiet night being able to hear it grow no and it like the sound is sounds like bones like being stretched and splintered yeah it's, it's, it's the whole thing that's wild imagine it coming up through your tent like yeah it's the same like bamboo because like, it grows so quickly and they say like you actually can hear it growing yeah that's crazy yeah all right. Um, I looked at some of the deadliest human parasites. I'll go for it. Just to scare some people. Is it just humans? Full stop. Um, well, yeah, it doesn't <laughs> count because they'll be the same species. 
I mean, yeah, like, but we I mean, like we're, we're probably on parasites us. to the earth, but yeah. uh, this is parasites to us. Oh, okay, go for it. Um, oh, what to go for? All right, well, we'll start with the blood fluke. Um, so these are notorious parasites that cause a condition called schistosomiasis um, or bil- bilharzia. And there's more than six species under this genus that will affect, infect humans. Um, as per usual, it starts with contaminated water is, is the, the main cause of human ingestion or parasites. Penetrates the host skin and then through the blood where it reaches the liver, intestines, urinary tract and causes itchy skin, stomach aches, diarrhea. At the later stages, however, if you don't catch it, um, it can basically enlarge your liver Okay. Which can't be comfortable. Um, cause some hematuria, prostate infection, bladder fibrosis, even infertility. And according to uh, the World Health Organization, there are 230 million cases of schistosomiasis have been reported since uh, its discovery in 1851. Obviously, it happened before that. It just didn't have um, a name. Um, and the only parasitic disease that has affected more lives than Bilharzia or uh, schistosomiasis is malaria but fortunately like malaria it can be treated uh, fairly easily with antiparasitic medicine um trying to see what other we, we talked we've spoken about the tapeworm so we're, we're not going to go go through that there are a couple that are kind of disgusting one of them is the brain-eating amoeba have you heard of this i think so so like it's very rare. Brains. No, this also comes from soil and warm water bodies. Um, to not cannibal, cannibalistic in nature, unless the one you're eating also has some brain-eating amoebas in it, maybe. Oh, okay. It's so it's very <laughs> it's like overpowered mind flayers. Uh, <laughs> so in the period of 1962 to 2019, only 148 individuals have been reported to be infected with this parasite. That is in the US alone, but I don't think many other places are doing uh, records records of this. And of those 148 people, only four of them survived. So it's a pretty deadly thing. Um, That's a high, high difference. I don't even know how to pronounce the uh, the Latin, so I'm not going to try. It's found Ooh, in soil. I always try, so should you. Okay. Neglaria fowlery. Pretty sure that was awful. Um, that sounds right. Type your chest, Tom. Uh, people will know. People, people will just accept it. Uh, found in warm water bodies such as lakes, swimming pools, and hot springs. The parasite enters the human through the nasal cavity where it reaches the brain and starts damaging brain tissue, causing a fatal disease called primary amoebic menin... Wow. Menin... Meningo... Meningoencephalitis, or PAM. Um... And then within five to seven days, the infected person normally dies. So basically, they say just use a nose plug when you're swimming. And then this can never happen to you. Yeah. But it's fairly rare, so I wouldn't worry. Um, and then the last one is the filarial worm, also known as Wuchereria bancrofti. Uh, so this enters the human body through the bite of an infected mosquito similar to malaria mm-hmm. this thread-like worm then attacks the human lymphatic system 
eventually causing excessive swelling of legs, external reproductive organs, uh, arms, and breasts. This condition is called elephantitis or filariasis. In many p- cases, the infected per- person becomes permanently disabled because the body is either partially or completely deformed due to abnormal distribution of lymphatic fluid in the affected region. Now, more than 120 million people have been affected specifically due to this one parasite uh, just in Asia, Africa, and South America. And 40 million of these people have become permanently disabled. And what's even worse is not only are these people then like unable to you know carry on their lives as they were before but because humans are such dickheads sometimes uh those people are then relegated from the society in which they find themselves in and are often forced to live alone like wild just the implications like i think we don't think of a lot of the time are beyond the immediate ones Mm. um when it comes to stuff like parasitism uh, and things like that as well but i i guess that's the uh the product of living in a society right there's always more than one we do live in a society yeah unfortunate (laughs) (laughs) sometimes gotta wake up go to work nine to five like get on that grind yeah disgusting (laughs) all right uh we've got a couple minutes left is there anything you want to throw at the ear holes of the listeners no that's 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 it for me i had some more stuff about like the history, the warfare, conquests, that kind of stuff. But, you know, that'll be for another time. I'll, I'll shelve that. Yeah, I've got uh, quite a bit on wasps. Because I think wasps are useless. Um, but apparently they form some functions. So, yeah, if we ever do parasites again in the future, I'll uh, I'll come back to that. Mm-hmm. Alrighty then. So that brings us to a wrap. Don't forget to share this with your friends, families, co-workers, scientists... And even your dog, as Mitch said earlier. Yeah. If you want more information, fun, science, you can follow us at Twitter and TikTok at InfoEntropyPod, Instagram, InformationEntropyPod, and of course, whichever directory you're listening to this on right now, if you can give us a like, rating, follow, comment, whatever it is, we appreciate it absolutely massively. Um, yeah, anything you want to say? Any, any final words? No. <laughs> cool <laughs> we'll catch you guys next week then yeah, peace for now <laughs>